Welcome, everybody. This is Josh Levitsky and Roz Manon, and we'd like to welcome you to November's edition of the AJT Highlights podcast. Roz, uh, welcome. Hey, Josh. It's a lot quieter. Last time we were at Fellows, and there seemed to be right. a lot of activity in the background. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. So I think this November, it's going to be a little bit more low key for this podcast. Um, <laughs> we have four papers to go over, really nice papers, um, two kidney, um, one kind of liver kidney combined and one heart paper. Um, but they all uh, were editors picks and um, are nice clinical studies to, to review. And hopefully you'll get something out of this that you can take back to your practice. So Raz, I wasn't sure which order of the one uh, I'm gonna, yeah, do. I'm going to start with uh, the first paper is the is Alex Senev's paper with Martin Nason, specificity, strength, and evolution of, of pre-transplant donor-specific HLA antibodies, determine outcome after kidney transplantation. That I'll do that one first, and then I'll go into the and then I'll talk about coffee. allocation. Okay. Is, um, okay. And, so just to um, let me just kind of the table of contents for this uh, podcast. So. So Roz will do um, the what she just said, the Nason's paper, the specificity, strength, and evolution of pre-transplant donor-specific HLA antibodies determine outcome after kidney transplantation, and then move into uh, Summer Gentry and group paper on accelerating kidney allocation, simultaneously expiring offers. And then I will do two papers, the first one being uh, Molnar and James Eason's a study on a, a single center study, a, a real world report of transplantation of kidneys from hepatitis C infected donors to hepatitis C negative recipients. And there's a nice uh, editorial accompanying that. And then finally, we'll end with a heart transplant paper from Marcus Barton and, and colleagues um, entitled Comparing Everolimus Based Immunosuppression with Reduction or Withdrawal of Calcineurin Inhibitor reduction from six months after heart transplantation, the randomized Mandela study. So without further ado, um, Raz, if you want to kick it off. Sure. Your... Yeah. So that's great. Thanks, Josh. This is a paper from the Leuven uh, Belgium kidney transplant group. And just as the background, um, this paper is investigating the role of pre-transplant donor-specific antibody in a specific context. And the goal of this paper was to look at the impact of pre-transplant DSA not in a desensitization status, oh, that's because these patients won't be, but to sort of look at what the natural history of antibody is and, and its relationship to post-transplant outcomes. And I think one of the problems when we look at this literature is there's a lot of things, you have to read the methods, you have to understand the patient population. This group does a wonderful job in sort of focusing on a specific group, that is those that have single antigen B positive detected donor antibody, but they have negative cross-match. And in Belgium, in, in this cohort, for example, their cross-match technique is using cytotoxicity, meaning you take recipient serum, you put it on donor cells, you add some complement and a color additive, and you look for cells being lysed. And so less sensitive than what many of us use in the U.S., which is flow cross-match. But needless to say, they focus on a cohort of individuals that have known pre-DSA and the literature about how those people do is all over the place. And I think that was kind of a stimulation for them to sort of do this, to do this project and to sort of figure out, you know, what happens to these antibodies. They focus on about 10 years of patients in their cohort, which is a natural history cohort, 
and they focus on about 935. They got rid of redo transplants and combined other solid organs and anybody with early graft failure. All of these 900 or so transplants don't have, have negative CDC cross matches. They're not desensitized, but they have detectable donor-specific antibody. Again, why is this? Probably because CDC cross-match is the least sensitive method of detecting donor-specific antibody, and yet the single antigen B technique is probably the most sensitive. And they also did high-resolution typing of both recipient and donor using 11-HLA loci, including ABC, DR-beta-1 and uh, 3 and 4, 5-GQ-alpha-1, DQ-beta-1. DP and DP antibodies. And I think if I read correctly, their MFI cutoff was 500. The results, and I'll cut to that, Chase, is in table one, about 12% of patients with pre-transplant DSA of the whole cohort, which ended up being about 105 individuals compared to those that didn't have pre-transplant DSA. And then they sort of drill down on how all those patients do. Figure one shows um, sort of in a concert fashion the 924 in the cohort, the vast majority did not have pre-transplant DSA, and then the very careful follow-up of the post-transplant DSA. First and foremost, um, what they found that was interesting is that the vast majority, many, many, well, not the vast majority, 50% of patients with pre-transplant DSA resolved their DSA post-transplant. And in the other half, there is still persistence. So if you can't remember anything, 50 and 50 is 100. And so that's one way maybe to think about it when you're, when you're considering this paper. And then interestingly, they look at the distribution of who developed antibody-mediated rejection in, in those individuals with no, with resolved DSA post-transplant, half get ABMR and half don't. So the pre-transplant predilection for developing uh, antibody-mediated rejection is not predicted by the pre-transplant DSA in and of itself. The association with um, outcomes was important that persistent DSA was frequently associated when you had anti-DQ antibodies. And if you had a very high MFI pre-transplant of, of, of your antibody of more than 3,780 units, they were actually able to use an optimal cutoff to predict who would have persistent DSA. The biopsy data are interesting. It's interesting to note that you can develop new antibody-mediated rejection, but resolve your pre-transplant DSA Persistent DSA is an independent risk factor for graft failure, which I don't think is unexpected. And it's independent of episodes of antibody-mediated rejection because not everybody with pre-transplant DSA, persistent DSA, ended up having AMR. About 40% about of individuals go on and, and, and seemingly do a well. So um, they have a very nice Kaplan-Meier curve on figure two, which might be a nice slide if you're giving a teaching session. They go through very detailed uh, explanations of the biopsy pathology, which is worth looking. And I think the whole point of this paper, to summarize quickly, is that you know pre pre transplant DSA isn't necessarily always going to mean badness. It is an independent risk factor for graft outcomes, independent of the development of antibody mediated rejection. And I think that's important. It it, it has a different uh, implication low MFI antibodies, um, and, and particularly class one antibodies seem to go away with just sort of standard induction. And so, you know, historic donor-specific antibody may be less relevant than contemporary DSA in terms of AMR. Uh, certainly, we used to think that, you know, historic positive cross-match, taking historic serum and doing a cross-match was bad news, but maybe this paper suggests that you have to really look at 
the quality of the DSA, what the DSA is to, and the strength of the DSA, which is kind of a message I think we've heard in, in other papers. But very nice study, and for the details, take a look at the paper. The rather go- question. I was just curious how how um, relatable is is are these patients to the U.S. population? It it just seemed to me that. I guess I would have expected a much higher percentage of patients having pre-transplant DSA than they did in this population, or maybe maybe not. I just was curious. If- well, I think they had like 12%. You know, it's hard to know because yeah, I think we have same. so many. I have to be careful when I say, because I don't want to go into center-specific practice versus what's done nationally. So I think, you know, you're going to have pre-transplant DSA that's desensitized, that's well below these thresholds. I mean, if it, if the MFI cutoff is greater than 500 in their lab, our MFI cutoff here is like 1,500 mm-hmm. or 1,000 in some places, you may find that you're, that the cutoff really determines it. So maybe the DSA positives would be lower in another center because they're using a different cutoff. So mm-hmm. they were using a very conservative cutoff suggesting, you know, 10% or 12% had positive DSA. And again, and I found this in my own practice where you have these DSA positive by single antigen bead flow negative patients, and some do really well and some don't. And I think it really drives home the point that you have to look at the HLA lab report printout you, and, and mismatches between the two didn't seem to matter. These, I don't think there were any redo transplants in this cohort. I may, be, I may have misspoken, but again, you have to look at the mismatch. You have to look at the the antibody and the strength of the antibody and the quality, like an HLA-C antibody probably doesn't have clinical as much clinical relevance as an mm-hmm. anti-DQ antibody pre-transplanted. So that may be, you know, another issue to consider when you're when you're thinking about these people. But I think this is, you know, depending on where you set your cutoff, Josh, that's how you can tell who's got pre-transplant, you know, quote unquote DSA. So here, uh, you know, a good portion of those patients probably would not have been classified that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's nice. a great question. Yeah. Now I'm going to change gears completely and and talk about a paper by Mankowski and colleagues. This is the Hopkins um, Navy Go Navy Beat Army Transplant mm-hmm. Research Group mm-hmm. of Dory Segev and, and Summer Gentry, uh, and this is a paper called "Accelerating Kidney Allocation Simultaneously Expiring Offers." So, for those of you that may be surgeons or surgeons and pra- you know going into transplant or fellows, and you know more than me, take my apologies, because I don't do organ offers. But I thought this was a fascinating paper. And it also has an accompanying editorial by Jamie Locke and Marty Sellers with the catchy title, Get On With It. So (laughs) a novel, yes, with an exclamation point. So essentially, just to to remind the non-kidney people, you know, we changed the allocation scheme in December 2014. The idea was to have increased regional and national sharing, we recognize there would be longer cold times, there might be more kidney discards, and indeed, there are more discards. Discards are like a big conversation, opiometrics are a big conversation. And so when you have a high KDPI, less savory graft, or an individual's diabetes or older, they, they more frequently get discarded. And you couple that with a bigger area where, you know, whether you're shipping it further or you're keeping it on ice for a longer period of time as it gets turned down until there's final acceptance. And so um, because of that, the OPTN changed the policy to cut the time limit. So you couldn't just like wait hours and hours to make your decision. You really had a, you know, while you're saying yes or no as the primary center, other centers have provisional yes, no's, and then there's a waiting period. And there's a really nice graphic in figure one that kind of shows you in the top panel 
this is how it's done right now in the United States. And you can see that every time a center says, yeah, we'll look at it, yeah, you tack on 30 minutes and then they say, no, nah, we can't take it. And it keeps adding on and on. So, you know, I think what happens is you have potentially marginal kidneys that are affected in this way because they get too much cold time. So these investigators came up with a novel model that they call batching, batch offers, and that's shown in the bottom of figure one. The idea here is that you would provide simultaneous offers to one particular region or location locally and allow all the centers at the same time to decide, are they going to accept this offer, yes or no? And so the kidney would initially go to the, per, you know, while they're all making their decisions, the kidney would go to the person of the highest priority within that group. And then after that, if that center turned it down, the other centers would be right there ready to go. And at table one, they kind of show you in the first batch, you'd have six candidates. They may be at different centers within that locate that, that region, that donor service area, but they would they would the, the ranking match list, that kind of algorithm of who's the best match and, and the age, KDPI and all that would be intact. But all three centers would know right away who's coming up and who might be getting it so that they're ready and moving and they're not waiting. Okay, well, center A is going to turn it down for candidate one. Okay, now they got to go back to candidate two. That might be okay. But in the olden system, in the current system, you'd be waiting cumulatively as each center makes their decision. So I don't think we have a lot of time to get into their modeling, but they basically utilize this model using current SRTR data with its own limitations. They had about 13,000 kidney transplants. They use these batch sizes that were about small with only two regional, two centers. Well, they had a regional and a national batch. So small had two versus five. Medium size was five regional and 10 large, and large was 10 and 20 at a time. And they looked at the number of non-local offers per center per week, because there's obviously concern that you're going to be evaluating kidneys for different recipients and wasting time. They measured the number of average number of centers getting an offer for a specific kidney. And then they look at, they call this thing called disappointment probability. This is the percent of cases when a center accepted an offer, but the offer went elsewhere, which tends to be higher with low KDPI kidneys. The lower kidney, the better quality kidney would probably go. And not getting into all the methods, because some of them are over my head and some of them aren't, but there's not enough time. Importantly, for low KDPI kidneys, the most elegant, best kidneys possible. When they went from a small to large batch size of simultaneous offer, they rescued 6% of their kidneys, about 717 organs. The numbers may not sound large, but when you're thinking about groups of patients that are waiting and waiting and waiting, that to me, losing those, those kidneys seems to me to be a terrible shame. And that was out of a pool of 11,000. And when they looked at the high KDBI kidneys, the kidneys that we really don't like seeing cold time added to, they saved almost a quarter of those kidneys or almost 500 kidneys. So the notion here again is to, to try a simultaneous offer system. And I granted, you know, and, and as pointed out in the accompanying editorial by Sock and, Sellers and Locke, you know, this kind of allocation scheme isn't new. The UK has some kind of like fast track system, but uh, you know, I think that there's something to be said here. And, and one of the points that, um, Sellers and Locke point out is that we talk a lot about geography and we talk about, oh, well, there's difference in organ utilization and, and center practice and risk aversion. But one of the important things and aspects of geography is getting the organ there and, and dead ends in terms of transportation. So it's one thing to have multiple centers in New York City where, you know, your biggest problem is getting across, you know, getting across from the east side of the west side of Manhattan during rush hour. 
you know, our big problem is if we get an organ from, say, Ohio, Columbus, for example, trying to get it to Birmingham in a day is sometimes very difficult, having been a frequent flyer myself. So I think that these decisions about geography may not be so much a decision of aggressiveness or center specificity, but the recognition that adding 12 hours for transportation to a less than adequate you know, kidney is a problem too. And then you couple that with this waiting for people to make decisions, and then you're the seventh or eighth center to accept an organ, and now you've added 15 hours of cold time and the KDPI is high, and you're, you don't want to have DGF. So I think that they were a proponents. The, the reason they said get on it is it's about time to move on and try something new because the current system is not helping us. And then the other notion that they mentioned is that there could be stress to the transplant centers, that transplant centers are going to have to have optimal waiting lists. They're going to have to know their patients at the top of the list, and they're going to have to be ready to say, this person can accept this kidney and, 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 and be sort of logistically ready to go as opposed to, okay, now I'm going to catch up. And there was a question about exhausting waiting lists, which may only happen at smaller programs, but certainly larger programs like ours, where we have a very large active waiting list, this would be maybe heralded as a positive. So I think it's a novel, kudos to the UK, but, but novel in terms of trying something really out of the box. And, and that's why this, this group is really looked at very highly because they do some, they think of these things like you would have thought, well, why haven't we done that before? And, and you're just, they're just being very, very creative with a limited resource. So I enjoyed the paper and, and the editorial as well. Cool. Yeah. And, and definitely more to come. I mean, we'll see if this, what kind of traction this will have. As you know, future. as allocation yeah. continues to be a difficult yeah. area. Very difficult. All right, okay, Josh, so, well, let's go um, on yeah, to so, uh, some more. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit to another study on using hepatitis C infected donors for hepatitis C negative recipients and in kidney transplant patients. And so this comes from the Memphis group, uh, Eason and uh, Molnar is the first author. And basically, you know, the things that have been published out there have been clinical, very regulated clinical trials. The Thinker and Expander studies, which were from the Penn group and, and Hopkins. Whenever you have patients in a clinical trial with this kind of uh, transplant, you have things very very regulated, very clean. The drug therapy is immediately available. So this is a, a really nice report of basically instituting the practice of using hepatitis C positive donors for, for negative recipients in a center as their standard of care. This group at Memphis started doing this actually towards the beginning of when oral antiviral therapy became available. Um, and is now reporting their data on a basically several months of their practice of where they instituted a, a, a protocol as their standard of care and are reporting their outcomes, um, essentially kind of retrospectively reporting all the things that happened in, in their, their center with transplanting these patients. And does this look like the clinical trials where the results were were excellent. And so um, the way they consented, basically, they tried to consent all of their patients on the transplant list by sending them consent forms, um, by by mailing mailing them consent forms. And then and then they were asked to sign and send back the consent. These are the patients on the kidney transplant wait list. And they agreed to it when they got a call in for the organ, they were consented 
at essentially on the phone with the call in and then at the time when they arrived at the hospital by by signed consent they did i think their due diligence of of informing the patients of um, the risks and benefits so they they um their protocol was to essentially transplant these patients and wait for the viremia to occur in the recipient which i think is sort of usual practice right now is to do that and not just treat them prophylactically which we'll get into in a minute but this was sort of early on in this type of protocol and um, they made an institutional decision to wait until essentially about two or three months to treat the patients um, mm -hmm. mainly to make sure that the patients were doing well uh, post-transplant that uh, they were trying to get therapy approved which actually did not take very long and so this is kind of a, a bit of a natural history of what happens when you transmit hepatitis C and wait to treat them. Um, and and um, so this this group, this group um, is reporting antiviral, their, their, their hepatitis C uh, treatment outcomes, which, first of all, all of the patients that eventually got started on therapy and got a hepatitis C cure, which is not surprising. Mm -hmm. But within the time period while they were waiting to get hepatitis C therapy, um, some concerning uh, complications occurred. There were four patients who had rejection, which may be consistent with, it may not be totally out of line, but they're about 23% of the, actually 36% developed de novo DSA, 23% were class two. Um, this was in the follow-up period. Wow. And then um, one third and more than half the patients developed VK and CMV viremia. And again, it's hard to directly correlate that this is the hepatitis C transmission stimulating other viral replication or donor-specific antibodies, but that's sort of the, the implication. Mm -hmm. um, the good news, these patients had a good outcome. They cured their hepatitis C. They got transplanted earlier. It doesn't seem like there was a real significant graft problem from the BK or the donor-specific antibodies, but they do recognize um, and admit that it would be better to treat them much earlier. Um, and in fact, they were able to get an insurance process or the insurance approval more quickly over time as they enrolled these patients, which is really good. And so they were able to de decrease the time between transplantation and treatment initiation through their experience with this. Um, and so, you know, they, they advocate for earlier therapy. And, and um, I think that's what the clinical trials have supported. And in fact, there's a kind of a debate going on now as to whether to let the viral transmission occur or just to prophylactically uh, prevent transmission with perioperative therapy. And so um, Christine Durand at Hopkins, uh, who was the author of the expander study, uh, submitted this editorial, which um, if you look at kind of figure one of the editorial, sort of compares the real world versus sort of research where you have things more controlled. And in the real world, I think the longer the implication is the longer you have viral replication, the more likely it is is to get the indirect consequences of hepatitis C transmission. Again, while not proven, um, rejection BKV, BKV, viremia and CMV viremia seem to be at a higher rate than a normal transplant. And so, again, I think um, we are evolving towards earlier and earlier therapy. I think 
The issue, of course, is um, whether insurance will approve prophylactic therapy up front. I think they're moving more towards it because you basically are transmitting the virus in 100% of these patients. So you're going to need it anyway. But I like this paper because it is a real honest, real world experience with this and some of the struggles that they went through. And ultimately, they still had good outcomes for their patients. Mm -hmm. But it it does give us some, some lessons. So I guess it's hard to know. I looked at their induction. I mean, it's sort of standard. So it wasn't like they did something really unusual. You know, one thought I had was, you know, when they saw the recrudescence of hep C, did they start cutting back on immunosuppression? That would explain the DSA. Yeah. Yeah. But the BK, I'm like, yeah, their BK rates seem a little bit high. Again, it might be related to the TAC, but I, I think that's a novel supposition. Does the hepatitis C activation lead to sort of an ant you know i got some kind of t-cell suppression or something that goes on that i don't know i mean mm-hmm. i'm just making that up but i just no, thought this thing, you know something odd that you have all this co-infection suddenly um yeah. very interesting because that wasn't really picked up in the original studies as i recall i think it's certainly yeah you're right it then it certainly advocates for starting therapy at, as early as possible in case there is a correlation between Pepsi and mm-hmm. antibodies or other viruses. So, and then we're going to end with um, just a, a, a really nice heart transplant study. And I like this one because it was very similar to me to the liver transplant studies that have um, tried to minimize or withdraw calcineurin inhibitors. Um, a very similar approach. Um, as we, we all know that heart transplant patients have um, a pretty high rate of renal dysfunction going into transplant and then afterwards with their CNI therapy. This is native kidney dysfunction. And so, um, but if uh, the authors introduce the subject by by um, reporting on some previous trials that attempted to withdraw CNIs really early after the transplant within three months, and there was too much uh, rejection occurring in heart transplant, which of course, you know, they don't have creatinine or liver tests, they have, when you get a rejection in heart, you can have a serious consequence, uh, arrhythmia, heart failure. Mm-hmm. And so um, you don't want to get a rejection in, in heart transplant. It's, it definitely could be more consequential. And so uh, this meant, this is the study that was, um, and the authors are, this is from Hanover, Germany, and, and other German centers um, that did this trial called the Mandela trial, where they basically uh, waited till six months after transplant and randomized them to reduce CNI plus an mTOR inhibitor, Everolimus, versus withdrawing the CNI completely at that time point and putting them on Everolimus and uh, MPA. And so they wanted, this is basically comparing two renal sparing strategies, one more aggressive than the other, and to look at the primary endpoint, which was estimated GFR. Uh, but they also looked at, of course, treatment failure, uh, meaning a compositive endpoint of rejection with hemodynamic compromise, graft loss or retransplantation, death or loss to follow-up, or other things like major cardiac events. So what they powered the study on EGFR to show a difference. And so they um, randomized 162 patients to these two arms, and they uh, had a pretty good compliance with the study terms of patients they maintained on the study for clinical trials. 
And um, the gist is uh, the first, there's a couple messages here. The first is that the renal function, not too surprisingly in the CNI free group, was dramatically better um, oh. by the end of the study, which was an 18 month follow-up. And um, in fact, the, the renal function in, in a certain percentage got dramatically better. There was about 30% that had a greater than 10 ml per minute improvement in EGFR, and there were 21% that had a greater than 25 ml improvement, which is which is dramatic. The the numbers were kind of small, but a certain percentage of the of the um, this uh, cohort had a, a dramatic improvement. The reduced where they didn't get rid of CNI, the reduced CNI with mTOR had had some modest improvement and some stabilization. So they did seem to benefit, but not as much from a, a renal standpoint as the um, withdrawal. Now this, there was a price to pay though, which is, um, again, this is what we saw in the liver studies with CNI withdrawal is that rejection was, was much higher in the CNI withdrawal group Although they noted that six of their 15 rejections, which probably pushed the p-value to where it was significant, had everolimus levels of less than five. Mm -hmm. And so um, the message is, um, if you kept those levels within higher therapeutic, um, they might not have had as much rejection. And so I'm not a heart transplant person, but the way I read this and also the, the editorial that was written by Howard Eisen and Annie Tse at um, Penn State was that this was kind of an expected outcome of a study with, but I think the renal improvement was more dramatic than was planned for, which is, which is, I think is exciting, but they suggest that uh, perhaps to completely withdraw CNI therapy, you should maybe only be considering a group at low immunological risk. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't know, uh, they looked at how do you like specifically define that in heart transplant and that needs, of course, having a personalized um, approach or biomarkers that could say a patient is at higher risk of renal dysfunction might be the, the way to go or a lower risk for rejection. But I, I thought, again, this was a, a well done study that, that does show that um, if you could somehow yeah, protect the patients from rejection, but withdraw the CNI, then those patients, I think, really benefit from, especially from the renal standpoint. So um, kind of cool study. Very interesting. I mean, you know, you are the man of biomarkers of kidney <laughs> dysfunction. Would, do you have a shameful self-promotion I can ask you to provide us? Um, well, you know, we, um, I, I'll, I'll say that we just, um, <laughs> we just published, not in AJT, but in, in hepatology, a model called PRESERVE, which can, in a liver transplant population, uh, predict from two biomarkers, beta-2 microglobulin and CD40, who are at risk for renal deterioration when their GFR is normal. Mm -hmm. early after transplant. So it made me think about it with this heart study that doing that model, I mean, slightly different, but maybe not too much different, heart and liver. Um, this is native kidney. These are CNIs. It's probably very similar phenomenon. It made me think to, uh, to maybe test, uh, to reach out to this group to see if they have some samples available to test. But yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's a cool study. Um, I think very informative for the heart transplant world and, and, um, I think that is it. I think we're right at the end here. The, yeah. These were really nice 
studies to spend a little more time on because there were less of them uh, this time around. Um, uh, I guess we're, we'll be up in December with a slew of new studies to talk right, about. Right, with, with the holiday edition of... Uh, there we go. Yeah, JJP. we'll have a Christmas, Hanukkah. You know, we're going we're gonna to surprise somebody. I was trying to get Dr. Locke today, but we were so busy. I, I wanted to have a few guests, but we will have to try to do that well, Let's next think time. about that next time. That's All right. Yeah. All it right. Well, depend on the papers that come in, but yeah. All right. Great. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll, we'll see you next month. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.